The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. You'd open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read to you this morning, beginning in verse 9. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he may taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of God, excuse me, the children that God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It's the word of the Lord. Have you ever thought about the question, what is it that makes humans human? What is it that makes humans human? I mean, there's lots of creatures in the world and lots of creations in the world. What is it that sets humans apart and makes them human and not something else? Maybe it's something you don't think about very often. It's something that is thought about often in other spheres. Hollywood thinks about it often and often explores it in films and in popular productions. I haven't seen one lately that explores that, but one that immediately came to my mind as I was thinking about this this week was a movie that I saw back in uh, golly, it's the early 2000s. I don't remember. So one of you may remember uh, the date of the movie, but it's a movie called I, Robot. Did any of you see the movie I, Robot? It was starring Will Smith. Raise your hand if you saw I, Robot. Okay, so a lot of you saw I, Robot. I'm just trying to figure out how much context I need to give. So, uh, the brief context, I'm going to show you a little clip. Brief context, Will Smith is a detective in the future. And in this future, there are robots that have been created, and they're very lifelike robots. Everybody has a robot in their home that helps them with something, and they're very lifelike and they can do all sorts of things from uh, help police to assist the elderly around their home get their coffee and tea in the morning. 
but they are robots. But in the mix of these robots is one robot that's like the others, but he's not like the others. Because it seems like there's something different about him, something much more similar to people than the rest of the robots. Will Smith, this police officer, hates the robots altogether um, because of some past events. And in the scene I'm going to show you right now, this one robot that's different has been involved in a death, the death of the man who made him and all the other robots. And Will Smith believes that this robot is responsible for the murder. And so the robot has been captured. Will Smith is going to interrogate him. And it's in the mix of this interrogation. I want you to listen. The storyline doesn't really matter. It's insignificant. But I want you to hear the interchange because in the interchange you hear how Hollywood, at least at the making of this film, was thinking through the issue of what makes humans human. Interesting little interaction there. Even if you don't know the movie, you see the point. There's an exploration of what exactly is it that makes humans human? What is it that's different about a robot than a person? Is it the ability to feel fear, to feel an emotion? Is it the ability to be creative, as Will Smith was saying, to write a symphony, to paint a picture on a canvas out of creativity? What is it that makes people people and humans humans? What is it, another way of saying, what is it that God has done differently in making us that we can't replicate in making robots or something else? There's something about us that's essentially human. And it's different. It's different than any other thing. When we think about the story of the birth of Jesus, it gets an awful lot of airtime in the public this time of year. It gets an awful lot of airtime in the church. But I think, at least in my experience, at Christmas time we tend to talk an awful lot about the birth of Jesus in light of the divinity of Christ. We tend to talk a lot about and think a lot about the fact that Jesus, the baby born in a manger, is God who's come near to us. That He's not just a baby, but He's God. That He's divine. That the God of the universe has come near to us and divinity is close to us. And that's very true. And it's very much a part of, of what we celebrate at Christmas time and a very significant piece of the story of the birth of Jesus. But just as important as focusing on his deity is a focus on his humanity. You see, Christ wasn't just God. He was also man. The Word of God teaches us that that, that Jesus Christ was wholly unique in the sense that he was both at one and the same time fully divine and yet also fully and completely human. He was a human in the same sense that you're human. He was a human in every sense that I'm human. He was a human in every sense that that robot on the screen was not human. He is God, but he is a man as well. From the very beginning of the early church up until today, 
there's been heresy after heresy after heresy that's built around a belief system that says at some level Christ wasn't fully human. That he was something else. That he was something other than fully man. Oh, in the early church of the first century, it was something called docetism. There was a genuine belief that that sort of flowed out of uh, Plato's uh, philosophy that says that matter was bad and spiritual things were good. And so there's no way God could take on human flesh and be a human. That would be taking on matter, which is bad and evil, and God could never do such a thing. So Jesus couldn't have possibly been fully a man. That would make him somehow evil. Those heresies morph and they change into our time. But at the end of the day, the question that's brought up is the issue is, was Jesus really human? And I want to suggest to you that fundamental to Christianity is a belief that Jesus Christ was fully and completely human in every sense of the word human. Everything that makes a human a human, Christ was that. And nothing less. He was more, but he was not less. In our text, <clears throat> this, we're going to take a flyover of this text, but I want to kind of sort of show you how the writer of Hebrews says this in multiple ways throughout the text. If you look at your Bibles and you just track through our, our text beginning in verse 9, we see several statements that point us in this direction. We, we see that he was for a little while made lower than the angels. That is a reference to his birth, his incarnation, the Christmas story, him putting on human flesh and becoming human. In becoming human, he took on a role and a status that was a little lower than the angels for a little while. A little while later in our text, he talks about the relationship of Christ and believers, the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. And he says of them that they partook of the same things. A little while later, he says he is like his brothers in every respect. Do you see that as we work our way through the text? For he who sanctifies, verse 11, and those who are sanctified all have one source. So Jesus and believers all have one source or one father. We all come from the same father, and that's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So Jesus and believers are brothers because we come from the same father, and we partake of the same things, and we have the same nature. All of those are ways of saying Jesus is human. That he's a man. Verse 14, he partook of all the same things as those who were flesh and blood. And he goes on. And the whole point of this text is to convince you and to convince me of the absolute critical nature of understanding the humanity of Jesus. Of understanding that what took place in Bethlehem many years ago was God becoming truly a man. When we look at a manger, when we look at the little outline of a baby there, we think of a cute little cuddly baby, we think of him as God, but we should also think of him as man. Because that's what he is. He was born a human, fully human, the same sort of human as you. The same sort of human as me. 
In every way that I'm human, Jesus was human. In every way that you are human, Jesus was human. The Westminster Confession sums it up this way. It says the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. I like that statement. He took upon him man's nature with all of the essential properties and all the common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. The only piece of human experience that you and I have that Jesus hasn't had is sin. Everything else that makes us human he experienced exactly as you and I experience it. The scriptures go to great, great lengths to make clear that we understand the humanity of Jesus. We see it from the very beginning in a very distinct description of his birth, being born of a woman. A virgin birth, yes, but born of a woman. His mother was a human, and yet the Bible tells us he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so having a human mother and a conception by the Holy Spirit allowed for the perfect uniting of divine and human nature in one person. It also did something else. It made full humanity possible without inherited sin. Jesus did not descend from Adam in the same way that you and I descended from Adam. We descended from Adam in the fullness of what it means to be Adamic. All of human nature plus a sin nature. Christ was born with all of human nature except sin. That's why in Luke chapter 1 verse 35 the angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called what? Holy, perfect, set apart, sinless, the Son of God. Somehow, in the birth of Jesus to a human mother and a conception by the Holy Spirit, the unbroken line of sin that had come through Adam all the way through humanity was interrupted for a moment. And Christ was born fully human apart from a sin nature. He had a human body. Nobody that saw Jesus ever questioned whether he was a human. Nobody ever encountered Jesus and says, is that, dude, is that guy a robot? I almost said, dude, my wife told me this week I'm not allowed to say that anymore on Sunday morning, so I'm trying to clean it up. I, I caught it, but it was a little too late. Nobody who ever saw Jesus said, is that guy a robot? Is that guy an apparition? Is that guy something else? No, everybody who encountered him encountered him and engaged him like a normal human being. He had a human body. He looked like other humans. He got tired. He got thirsty. He got weak. He needed to eat. He needed to drink. He needed to sleep. When he was crucified, his body ceased to function just like our bodies cease to function when they die. And even after his resurrection, although in some ways different, 
He still had a human body. A perfected human body, but a body still. That's why when he appears to his disciples and Thomas, he says, See my hands and my feet, that it's I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. He still is a human. He still has a human body, though perfected. Wayne Grudem says this, As far as Jesus' human body is concerned, it was like ours in every respect before his resurrection. And after his resurrection, it was still a human body with flesh and bones, but made perfect. The kind of body that we will have when Christ returns and we are raised from the dead as well. He had a human body. The Bible also makes clear that he had a human mind. He had a human mind. When Jesus was born, he was born as an infant. Just like the infants that are born to you. As a baby, he cried. And just like every other infant, he had to grow mentally. He had to learn things. He had to learn how to eat. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to obey his parents. He did that perfectly, but he had to be taught the rules. Mom had to say, Jesus, don't do this. Jesus, don't do that. Here's the line. He had to grow up. He had to learn. He had to learn to talk, to walk, to eat, to write, to read. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There was an increase in wisdom. He he was born with a human mind, and like any other human mind, it had to grow, and it had to expand, and it had to increase, and he had to learn, and he had to gain wisdom as he grew. Yes, he was the God of all the universe, who was omniscient and knew all things, but in taking on the limitations of a human body and human nature, he couldn't fully exercise his omniscience. He had a human mind. And a human mind has to grow and learn. Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus said about the return, the second coming, but concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven know, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus, when when is the second coming? I don't know. Only the Father knows that. He had a human mind. It had to grow and develop and increase in wisdom. He had a human soul, human emotions. We see that all throughout the text of Scripture. In John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus marveled at the faith of a centurion. He wept deeply at the grave of his dear friend, Lazarus. As he experienced life and all of the circumstances that come along with human life and a human world and a human experience, he experienced all of the fears and all of the anxieties that any other human being could ever experience. We hear him say in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. That's a statement that's built off of human fears and anxieties. If there's any other way, I'd rather it not be this. But nevertheless, it's your will, not mine. 
No, he had a human soul. He had human emotions. He, he, knew, he knew and understood and fully experienced loss, the pain of betrayal, grief, joy, laughter, excitement, disappointment. Everything that's a part of the human emotional experience, Jesus, he knew. Because he lived it. And every emotion, any and every emotion that you and I know, he experienced it just as you experience it. And just as I experience it. In our text, in verse 17, it tells us, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect that you're a human, Jesus was a human. And it was critical that he be a human in every way that you're human. In fact, as we're going to see, there was an awful lot riding on that. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't want us just to know that Jesus was human. He wants us to know why that matters. He wants us to know why that is critically important. And in our text today, I want to show you why that's critically important. There are six things that he gives us here, six reasons why Jesus being fully human is absolutely critical to your faith and to mine. And you're looking at your watch and you're saying, there's no way, no way. Not happening today. And you're probably right. <clears throat> but we're going to make a, a good shot at it. He wants us to know that it is not incidental that Jesus became a man. In fact, he had to become fully human. For these reasons. Reason number one. Jesus had to become fully human so that he could die our death so that he could die our death. We see that in verses 9 and 10. But we see him for who, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that is, became human, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And here we go. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, bringing many sons to glory. So that he might taste death for everyone, bringing many sons to glory. Jesus had to become fully human so that he could die like a man. So that he could taste death for you and for me. If Jesus is anything less than human, then his death is insufficient to save. That's the argument that we see all throughout Hebrews. It's introduced to us here. I need to define two terms in this particular set of verses so that we understand what the argument really is. The argument is simply this. Taste, let me give you the terms first. Taste does not mean what you and I think of when we hear taste. When you and I hear the word taste, like, I don't know if I like that food, I think I'll taste it. We mean to sample something to see if it's okay or to see if we like it. The word translated taste here in Greek is a word that means to experience fully, not to sample. To experience fully. So the translation into English makes it a little opaque. So we could say, so that by the grace of God, he might experience fully death for everyone. So that's what taste means. What does the everyone mean? 
Because that's confusing on the surface. Because if Jesus fully experienced death for everyone, doesn't that lead us naturally to think of some sort of a universal salvation? If Jesus has fully experienced death for everyone, then everyone ought to be saved, right? Is that what the writer of Hebrews is arguing? It is certainly not what he's arguing, because if we look to our own text here through verse 18, we can see very clearly that he does not have in mind any sort of a universal salvation. He says, in fact, that Jesus tasted death in order to bring many sons to glory, not everyone to glory, but many, but not all. He talks about those who are sanctified later, which is clearly not everyone. You distinguish those who are sanctified from those who clearly are not sanctified. He talks about those who are his brothers. Not everyone is in view. Only some people are his brothers. And he talks about the offspring of Abraham, not the offspring of Adam. All of those are indications that he's not talking about some sort of a universal salvation. So if taste means to fully experience, and everyone doesn't mean everyone in the sense of everyone is saved. One author said it this way, and I think it's really good. You can maybe write it down and it will help you later. When he says everyone, everyone here means Everyone without distinction, not everyone without exception. Everyone without distinction, not everyone without exception. Does that help you at all? When he says Christ died for everyone, that means he died for anyone. Any sort of person, any kind of person, for every kind of person that there is in the world, Christ's death was sufficient and available. It doesn't mean it was efficacious for everyone without exception. The point of the text here, though, is to convince us that Jesus had to be fully human in order to die our death. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to, say this part with me, give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus understood that he came to die. He came to give his life. That that was... His mission was to die, was to die a death. And that death was our death. He came to die as our substitute. He came to give his life. And in order to give his life, he needed to have a life. That's why he was born a human. The wages of sin, Romans tells us, is what? It's death. Human beings sinned. And the wages of human sin is human death. Because you've sinned, you will die. Because I've sinned, I will die. And I'm talking about physically, but spiritually it's true as well. If somebody somewhere doesn't do something about my sin, I will die a second death, which means I will be eternally separated from Christ forever. That is the wage for my sin. That's what God owes me. But Christ came to die our death. He came to taste death in my behalf. He came to experience death fully so that he could bring me, one of his many sons, to glory. In order to do that, he had to be a man. The only one who could pay the price for human sin is a human sacrifice. When we look to the Old Testament... You see, the whole sacrificial system is set up weekly for people to come gather around the temple and to sacrifice animals and to watch death take place and to watch blood flow. And those animals are there as a substitute, a temporary substitute. 
And they're there as a reminder of the severity and seriousness of our sin problem. But the writer of Hebrews is going to make clear later in our letter that those that those sacrifices done over and over and over, week after week after week, year after year after year after year, were never, ever sufficient. Because the death of an animal is never a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of men. It couldn't possibly be. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 44 and 5. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said this, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. Jesus understood that he was a human, and that he had a human body. And that that human body was to be a sacrifice that could accomplish for us what the death of an animal could never accomplish. In order to undo what Adam did... Jesus had to be a man like Adam, but perfect. In order to die a human death, he had to have a human life. Angels don't die. Apparitions don't die. Deity doesn't die. An illusion can't die. But humans die. And in order for him to die in our place, in order for him to fully experience death, the wage of your sin and mine, he had to be a man. He had to be a man, and he had to live a human life, and he had to die a human death. Jesus had to be a human fully in order to die your death. If Jesus isn't human, if he's anything different than being human, if he's anything less than human, then his death is insufficient for your sins and for mine. And we're lost. But that's not the only reason that Jesus had to be a human fully. You already got a sneak peek at point number two. He also had to be fully human in order to, the writer tells us, destroy the devil. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus had to be a human being because it was through the death of a man that he would destroy the work of the devil. And he tells us that the devil holds the power of death. All of this was the result of the fall. Listen to what commentator Lane says. He says, The devil did not possess control over death inherently, but gained his power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. One of the results of the fall, one of the results of the satanic deception of Adam and Eve and the choice to sin, was that Satan gained an upper hand here. He gained the power of death. Death wasn't in the picture before that. And now the result of sin is death. And Satan wields the power of death to manipulate people, to frighten people. And the point that the writer of Hebrews is simply making, we'll talk about this more in the letter later, is that death dies only through the death of Jesus, the man. Better yet, the one who has the power over death is dethroned through the death of Jesus, the man. John Owen said it this way, 
All of Satan's power over death was founded upon sin. The obligation of the sinner to death gave Satan his power. If this obligation is removed, Satan's power would also be taken away. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus had to become a man because he had to die as a man. In dying as a man, he takes away the penalty that came with death. That gives death the power over us. And one of the purposes for which Christ came was to dethrone Satan. To destroy his power over people. The power that Satan has over men is the power of death. Because death is the paymaster for the wages of our sin. And if Satan can keep people living in their sin until they die, he has them forever. 1 John 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, John writes. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, Jesus says, was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. That's why Jesus appeared. It's one of the reasons. Destroy here clearly doesn't mean obliterate or annihilate. Because we know quite good and well that Satan is not obliterated or annihilated. That, in fact, Peter tells us at this very moment, what is his activity all about? He is roaming around like a... Roaring lions seeking those whom he may devour. He's wielding the power of death among humanity, seeking those he might devour. Finding ways to deceive and to lie and to manipulate, to keep men entrapped in lies, to keep them entrapped in all the, the, the sort of the philosophies of the world, which wrap them up in themselves and lead them away from Christ so that they will stay trapped in their sin until the moment they die and he has them forever. That's what he's about. And he could do that with absolutely every human being until Christ came as a man and died as a man. When Christ died as a man, he destroyed Satan's power to do that. And he gave men the ability to be free of the power of death. He neutered the power of Satan. One author said this. He said Satan still roams roams around like a, a roaring lion, but he's now a lion with a limp. I thought that was a good way of saying it. Satan's not obliterated, but his doom is sure. We sing that in one of our songs, don't we? His fate is sealed, his defeat is clear, and his date is coming. And he knows this. But for everybody who entrusts their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, something remarkable happens when we entrust ourselves to Jesus and we trust Him to save us. We trust His death on the cross in our place to save us. One of the results of that is we are freed from the power of the enemy. Satan no longer has free reign to keep us bound in our sin. We have the freedom and the ability to resist his temptation and to find victory over sin. And we have ultimate and complete victory over death in the grave through Christ who died and was raised on our behalf seems destroyed in that regard in our lives we're no longer enslaved to him but that's all predicated upon Christ being fully human he also had to be fully human to deliver us from the fear of death we see that in verse 14 as well and to deliver all those who through the fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. Do you think people are afraid to die? 
Do you think people are afraid of death? One author said this, death casts a long, dark shadow over life. Tom Schreiner writes this. He says, death means that human beings do not reign, but are ruled over by a foreign power. For they fear their eventual demise that comes inexorably upon them. Listen to this. In every moment of happiness, death is our dark shadow, reminding us that our joy is short-lived. That's true. Now, you and I have an advantage over many in the world. The advantage is we live in the United States of America, and that's an advantage. We live in the most advanced nation in the world. We live in the wealthiest nation in the world. We have remarkable abilities to stave off death and to keep it out of the forefront of our minds, don't we? I would be willing to bet most of you woke up this week every day and navigated your day and you did all sorts of things and you probably never thought one time about your imminent death. I mean, I've been sick for two weeks. I never thought about dying. I knew. I'm going to go to the doctor. He's going to give me a medicine. And whatever's ailing me is going to go away other than this nagging cough that seems to be eternal. But I'm not going to... I never thought I'm going to die. Because I live in a culture where pretty much the vast majority of things that, that, that plague our bodies, we can go get fixed pretty easily. If there's not a pill to take or a liquid to swallow, there's a, a, a trained professional somewhere who has a whole bag full of tools that can pull us up into his sterile environment and start cutting and doing things on us and fix what's broken, fix what's wrong. I mean, we live in a culture where we have the remarkable ability to stave off death so that it doesn't really cross our radars very much and we don't have to think very seriously about it. Between technology and between medical science, it just we're sort of insulated. There are places in the world, you know, many, where death is a daily reality at all ages. People starving, people dying, wars that rage incessantly where people die every day and people see death all the time and death is a constant forefront of their minds kind of a thing. It's not for us. And so I find that largely Americans don't think much about death. We don't think much about it. We don't consider it very seriously until we have no other choice, right? Eventually there are moments when we can't avoid it. Somebody that we know and love dies. They get something that can't be fixed. Something happens that can't be undone. And they're dead. And we have to conduct a funeral. And then there's no denying it because we have a body and we have to do something with it. And there's a reality that death is still there. It comes to the forefront of our mind when there are tragedies that happen. When there's some evil person that walks into some place and kills a bunch of people tragically, then all of a sudden we think about death for a minute or two. Some disaster takes place, a hurricane, a tornado, a tsunami, an earthquake, and people die, and we're struck with the reality of death. But for most people in the world, death and the fear of death are a constant reality. The psalmist writes in Psalm 55, 4, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. What's he talking about? His heart's in anguish and he's terrified that he's going to die. 
I had the unique experience this week to sit with a man who I had not previously met. And it was in one of those unique moments of a person's life. This man had been battling cancer for some time. Had come to the end of the road of the treatments for that cancer. And it was clear that death was coming. It was clear to him. It was clear to his relatives that were in the room. It was clear to me. It was clear to Ligon, who was with me, meeting with this man this week. And as I sat and talked with that man, it's a different kind of a conversation when you're talking with somebody who is close to death. Because the closer you get to death and you know that it's imminent, it changes the things that you think about and the things that you care about. But we began with small talk, and that small talk led to, well, tell me about what's going on with your health. And he tells me about his health, and, you know, I had this cancer, and then I had that cancer, and now I have this cancer, and the treatment, it nearly killed me. There's really nothing else they can do. And so I said to him, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? You know what he said to me? He said, I'm scared to death. He said, I'm scared to death. I said, I understand that. I understand that. That makes perfect sense to me. Death is something that humans ought to fear in general. Because it's the first part of the wages of our sin. And if we don't know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's something to be absolutely horrified of. But not for the reasons people are afraid of it but for what comes after it. I had a wonderful time talking with this, this man this week. And uh, I believe he knows Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I believe when that imminent death comes, he'll be absent from his body and immediately with the Lord. But we had a lot to talk about. We had a lot to talk about about what it means to know Jesus. And we had a lot to talk about about what it means to be human and what it's like to die. And what happens after that? Now, the fear of death is real. It's real. It's, in fact, the whole premise of all the horror movies that entertain Americans and people around the world, right? What is it that entertains people about horror movies? They scare you. Why do they scare you? People are dying all over the place. I'm not sure why that's entertaining, but it is. What is it about death that terrifies us? It's the fear of the unknown. What's it going to be like? What happens on the other side? What does it feel like? What awaits us? I think the fear of death is built off of an innate sense inside of all of us as human beings that we have an outstanding bill that has to be paid. As much as people don't want to admit it, we know we're sinners. And we know that we're accountable to somebody for what we've done and not done. At the end of the day, when a person puts their head on their pillow, they know that. And when they get to the end of their life, they're struck by it normally. They understand that there's a bill that has to be paid. And we know that we're sinners and one day we're going to stand accountable. And and the question is, when we're facing death, we're looking back over our life and we're thinking... Is what's been done enough to make it okay on the other side? 
And by the way, this is where all of our sort of religious works-based theology crumbles and falls quickly. When you grow up in a church culture like I did, when you're taught that here's what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is you hear a preacher preach a gospel message. You hear a preacher use guilt or fear to manipulate you to step out of your aisle and walk down in front of everybody and sign a card and pray a magic prayer. And then you're dunked in water and you're told, okay, now you're a Christian. Be a good person. Don't drink. Don't smoke. Don't cuss. Don't date girls that do. And go to church. And you're good. When that's the kind of thing that you're presented as the gospel, you know what happens when you get to be an old man dying of cancer, about to die? You're horrified. Because you look back at your life and you say, well, I tried to be a good person, but was I good enough? Well, I went to church... But I didn't go all the time. There were seasons when I didn't. Did I go enough? I prayed. I could have prayed more. Did I pray enough? And you start reciting, well, I did this ministry for a while, and I did that ministry for a while. Do you think that's enough? You see, when we misunderstand the gospel, it breeds the fear of death. But when we understand that our salvation is rooted in what Jesus did for us, Jesus the man died the death that this man deserved to die. And that it doesn't matter how many good and religious things that I do, I could never do enough. My only hope is that the perfect God-man would die in my place, pay my bill, and give me his righteousness. That's my only hope. If I haven't understood that and entrusted my life to Him and been the recipient of His righteousness, I have no reason to do anything but be terrified of dying. Jesus had to be fully human because He had to experience death as a man like you'll experience it. And like I'll experience it. He had to go to that grave in a human body, with a human mind, with human emotions, not with some ability and power that you and I don't have at our disposal. He had to go there as a man, and he had to die death just like the death you're going to die. And he had to do that as perfect, so that you can confess Him as Lord and Savior so that your sins could be placed on His bill and be marked paid by His death and His righteousness can be added to your account. So that when you come to the end of your life and it's cancer or it's a stroke or it's some horrific accident or it's some other way that you exit the world, you can face that moment without being horrified because you know It's not how many times I went to church. It's not how many times I prayed. It's not whether I was a good or a bad person or better than the next guy or worse. It's all about Jesus, the man dying in my place. And the perfect righteousness that he earned being credited to my account. And because I've confessed my sin, 
and entrusted my life to Him, I have eternal life. And whatever death looks like, and whatever it feels like, and whatever logistically the transition point is for me, I don't have to be afraid. And I don't have to live in fear of that moment. Because Jesus stands at the doorway of my life and says exactly what He said to His disciples. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I've gone to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself so that you will be where I am. It's John chapter 14. Pulled up my Bible on my phone with that dear man on Friday, and we read John 14. And this was toward the end. I said, look, you don't have to be scared to death of death because Jesus loves you. He died for you. He's your Lord and Savior. And He's gone ahead to prepare a place for you. And that is the place where you will be the moment you breathe your last breath. And you won't be there alone. You'll be with Him. And you'll be loved and cared for forever. No need to be afraid. Well, our time is way up. But I want you to understand all of what I've just said is predicated on the fact that Jesus was a man. When Jesus lived, He didn't live by some power you don't have. He didn't live by some godness that's missing from you. He experienced life just like you do. And He did it for those reasons. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you need to understand you should be horrified of death because apart from Christ you have no hope. You have no hope. You could never be good enough. You could never earn your way in. Never. Your only hope is that a man died for you and paid the price for your sin. Trust Him today. Trust Him today. Lord Jesus, You're remarkable. You're amazing. You're phenomenal. How is it that You're fully God and fully man? I don't know. I just know that You are. I know that Your Word declares You and presents You as such. And I know that in my own life I fail to think often enough about your humanity. I tend to see you as exalted above me and maybe a little out of touch with what my life is like. And yet you were just like me, a man. You experienced life just like I do. And you did it because it was the only way for you to die my death. It was the only way for you to pay my penalty. It was the only way for you to disarm Satan's power over my life. And it was your only way to eradicate the fear of death. And so, Jesus, I celebrate you. I thank you for doing what you did because you did not have to. And so this morning and this whole Christmas season, we celebrate you and what you've done for us. And God, if there be one in this place who doesn't know your son Jesus, by your spirit, draw them now, I pray, for Christ's sake and for theirs.